lightning. Inspirational. Inspirational. Powerfully refining. Powerfully refining. And unapologetically controversial. Conversations with the Royal Impress. The entire world knows the secret of who you are. Now is the time to step into your queendom and become the Royal Empress that you're meant to be. One woman at a time. Conversations with the Royal Empress. Now Akima, she's the analytical Empress. Akima, she's the Empress that will challenge you. Now, straighten up your crown and be elevated through conversation. Conversation with the Royal Empress. Welcome back to Conversations with the Royal Empress. We are in season two and we are now on episode four. Joining us today is my co-host, Akila. We are having a very candid and serious conversation today with a young lady who is a domestic violence survivor. And she has taken her experience and channeled it into a mission of aiding other women. Let me tell you a little bit about our co-host, Shaharia Johnson. Shaharia is an educator, a poet, a communicator, an activist, a healer, and domestic violence survivor. She is also the founder of Silent Kills. That leads us into our topic of today. Our last, our last episode, we talked about finding our hidden talents. It leads us to this episode because in this episode, we're going to talk about using those talents that God um, planted with, within us to overcome any type of uh, trauma or situation. So um, please welcome our co-host Akiva and also welcome our guest Shaharia Johnson. So Shaharia, go ahead and give a shout out to our audience for us. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Shaharia. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I, I want to share with the audience when I first met you and, and, and for the listening audience, I first met Shaharia at the Then the Sun Rose uh, Women's Retreat. And she was sharing her story. And I literally had to stop her and say, can you say that again? Did you just say what I thought you said? Like, I could not handle the situation in which she overcame her domestic violence situation in which she became a survivor. I could not handle it. And I had to have her repeat that. And I just want to say that you are one of the most remarkable women that I have ever met, Shahari. And I am pleased. And we are pleased to have you on our show today. Thank you so much. Kita, you look like you want to say something. Go ahead. I know you want to say something. Hey, no. <laughs> I, was just, I was just listening to you talk about Shahari. She is a beautiful person. Uh, and it, it was an absolute joy to um, meet Shahari. Little did we know there was a little Shahari in her belly. <laughs> I know, <Yeah>. right? <laughs> Oh, he is so adorable. Oh, my God. He is adorable. We said no men at the retreat, but he was like, yeah, I got something for you ladies because I am here bringing this male energy all up in here to bring some balance to this retreat this time. Yes, yes. I think I was about four months. I think I was uh, about four months pregnant during that time. Yeah. So I wasn't really sure, but just a little bit. 
<laughs> we didn't yeah, know. Yeah, so he, but, he was but able I to be touched you. as well. Yeah. And uh, what did I say when we were there? I was like, somebody is having a baby. Mm. I said that the whole retreat, you know, but she, she didn't even tell me, but I was like, we're going to have a retreat, baby. This year, something it, I could, I felt that all through there. Everybody was like, not me, not me. I was like, somebody going to be great. <laughs> oh yeah. I heard you. Cause I said, Oh no, man, I'm too old. I know you ain't talking about me. You know, everybody was casting themselves out quickly. <laughs> but Shahari, Anyway. But moving on to our topic. In, in, this, in talking with some, some teachers that I know, and with this whole shedding process, a lot of their students have been um, experiencing domestic violence or been in a household where domestic violence has been um, exercised or perpetrated on mom or any other family member in the house. And that has been on an increase. And it, it just took a very sad situation and made it even worse. So uh, for all of those who are indoors and forced to stay indoors for long periods of time, periods of time, it has increased the stats <laughs> of domestic right. violence. Yeah. So I'm not a person that's big on numbers, big on impact. And just the frustration from these teachers on the communication with their students and or them already knowing about, I already know that I have certain students that have domestic violence issues within the house. So now I'm concerned about them because now they're in the house and they're stuck in the house with this person who is perpetrating that type of violence. So uh, we can talk numbers, but the impact is just even far more greater. It's just, it's so right. sad to just hear that. It just took my gratefulness to a, to a low level because I'm like, I'm sitting here grateful or thinking about ways, think about ways that I'm, I should be grateful and, and be in a, a terms of gratitude. And then I hear this about, people who are experiencing domestic violence at an even higher rate. It's sad. Yeah. Well, according to the CDC, it's one in four women and one in four, uh, seven men will experience physical violence by their intimate partner at some point during their lifetimes. And there are at least 5 million acts of domestic violence that occur annually to women aged 18 years and older with over 3 million involving men. And that's according to the CDC. We have someone here with us today who has survived um, domestic violence. And Shaharia, I would like for you to kind of tell us your story. Okay. Um, I've been in only one domestic abuse relationship in my time, and it began around 2013. Um, I was with this person for about two years. Um, in the beginning, a lot of the things were, you know, fine. There were no red flags. I thought this person, you know, I believe I took this person for their word. I believe everything that they were saying because their actions were adding up. Um, and at the time, I didn't know what the domestic, the domestic violence, power and control will was. It was a lot of stuff that I began to experience during that relationship that I didn't equate to abuse because I just equated it to him having anger management problems and, you know, just emotional trauma of his own. And me just trying to be, I guess, sympathetic to the things he had told me he had went through, which was probably also manipulation to get me to feel sorry for the ways that he was treating me. Um, but so about a year into the relationship, I started to notice red flags. And for that whole second year, it was kind of like me 
trying to gradually separate myself and distance myself from him in a way that uh, I guess wouldn't be too harsh on him because I had learned by that point that because of everything that I know about his personality at that point, that he would, you know, lash out or something like that. So I couldn't just tell him that I wanted to leave. So I had to try to find other ways of saying stuff like, you know, I need to work on myself. And he would always just still, you know, come back and apologize, just try to make it seem like he was doing better. And over the course of that second year, my my eyes really, uh, you know, began to open. He never, we never really got into, you know, fist fights or anything like that. So people say, you know, a lot of times physical abuse, you know, it doesn't come until the end or like a big outburst in the end. It begins with emotional type of manipulation, verbal abuse. And that's that's the point that I was at about a, a year in. He would distance me from my friends and family. He would always be checking on me. He would always be wanting to come with me wherever I went, whether that was home, the store, um, just or, or parties or hanging out with friends. He always wanted to be there. And so that became a red flag. Then I also started to notice him being uh, very jealous, insecure. He would be going through my phone, even, uh, you know, just driving my car late at night. It would be a lot of these small little things. And throughout that second year, our arguments would get bigger. And then one time he had kind of, you know, pushed me uh, while we was having one of the arguments. And that in itself was a, a big red flag. Um, then after that, um, the, okay, so. Fast forward towards the end of the second year, we had gotten into a big fight. He came into my house and he, uh, he like, after having an argument, he had kicked down my door, like knocked down a TV, knocked a bunch of other things down. And then he had told me that I don't care, you know, I don't care who you get. I don't care who you tell. And so at that point, that was a, you know, that told me everything I need to know. I called the police. And they um, they told me I should get a protection order, and they told me I should uh, what they say file press charges for the damage. But I didn't want to do that again. Me trying to not make somebody else like worse, not really putting myself first. But it's something I've grown a lot from. Um, and so um, I would say about a week after that, because so okay, something that the audience may not know. I was a model since 2009, so I've been doing that for a long time. I, I had been planning to do something called Fest Africa. It's like an annual festival that happens at Silver Spring. Um, so it's something that I had been planning. He also was supposed to be in that show. Um, so he was there as well. Behind the scenes, he thought that one of the ladies was flirting with me. And so after that point, he had, you know, become very aggressive, like, on our way home, just like arguing to the top of his lungs, uh, bobbing the weaving through traffic, not obeying traffic signs, um, just just very angry, thinking that, just insecure feelings, thinking that I must have liked or been attracted to this lady as well, for the simple fact that he thought she was flirting with me. He wasn't really hearing me when I was saying that, you know, it's, I can't control how people are, but I can control how I am. Um, so he basically, uh, he, it was also my car that he was driving when I say he was bobbing and weaving through traffic. And I was like, stop the car. You're driving too fast. Just trying to reason with him. And he told me if I stopped the car that I would have to be the one to get out. Um, and so I just, you know, stayed in the car. We was on the highway. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get home or anything. So I stayed in the car. Then when we got back, he started to apologize and just make it seem like everything was my fault. 
And from that point on, I said, you know, somebody is going to die by the situation, you know, if I don't get out of it. It's going to end badly for for one of us. Um, And so for that whole week after that, I stopped responding to his calls, messages. He was reaching out to me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just on everything, still pronouncing his love for me, posting my picture, um, my pictures, saying how much he, you know, he's apologizing, just all of these things. And I still, I didn't respond. I was just ignoring it. Um, and so he, he only lives a few minutes away. He was living with his mom a few minutes away. So that the following weekend, I was scheduled to walk in Baltimore Fashion Week. Um, I was scheduled to walk for like seven different designers. So this is something that was planned. I was planning for months, so which was way before he, you know, the, those last big arguments. He, had, he already knew the day I was going, just everything about that. So I left out for the day to, to head to Baltimore. He was at the top of my hill. I live on a hill. On a, he was on a bike. He stopped and he said, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, I got to go. I'm, I'm already afraid at this point because I didn't know what he was planning because I, I knew he had anger problems and I just knew he wasn't right. Um, and I knew he was probably upset that I had been ignoring him for so long. He said, can I get in? I just want to talk to you. I'll get out the car before we get on the highway. And I was like, no, no, I don't want you to get in. We can talk later. Just trying to brush him off. And he got in the car anyway. Foolishly, my, my doors were unlocked. Um, and I did believe when he said he would get out before we got on the highway. Um, and so I, I live near Denwood Station. So I was heading to the highway, which is Kenilworth Avenue. And right, I stopped before the ramp to get on the highway. And I was like, okay, you know, I've, I've got to go now. But that's when he pulled out his knife and he told me to keep driving. And so at this point, I knew that something was about to go terribly wrong. He wanted me to keep driving on the highway. But I said, you know, I just had a feeling that that wouldn't be a good idea because if something was to happen, people probably wouldn't be able to find me or, you know, just highway, you have like rivers. So I uh, decided to turn right to try to make it past my sister house. My sister lives a couple minutes, a couple blocks up from Denwood Station. Um, So I kind of turn right to try to head past Deanwood Station. Of course, I don't really see anybody outside. It seems to be very quiet, quieter than I've, you know, ever, ever seen it. And then the whole time he has his knife uh, pulled out. I'm trying to pick up my phone. He picked up my phone, took it from me, still telling me to keep driving. Then I had made it on the street to where my sister lives, so on the same street, but still a block behind. And I got closer to the corner, a block behind, and he told me that if I keep straight, which would be towards her house, um, that he would stab me. So he told me to turn right. So at that corner, I kind of slammed on the gas to still try to make it anyway. Um, and then that's when he jerked my wheel, and it went immediately over the curb, and the tires bust. So I was still in my seatbelt, and then that's when he proceeded to stab me. He stabbed me about 14 times. Um, I have a couple wounds in my breasts, um, about seven on my neck, and then also uh, I don't know how many in my head, but it's a few a few places in my head as well, and I have like scratches on my wrist. And then he just got out the car and ran. He took my phone, my purse, all of my belongings. Um, and then a guy had came out of his house um, and was just looking. I guess he didn't understand what had happened, and I was so at this point my when he had stabbed me on my neck, I immediately went paralyzed um, because it went through a portion of my spine. 
So my head was kind of, you know, dangling down. Like I couldn't, it was like slowly and slowly lowering. I couldn't move my hands. My legs were all, you know, twisted up. I couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't, couldn't do anything. I just felt cold blood running down. And I, I was afraid because I, I couldn't move. I was kind of like screaming out help, but very lowly because I didn't have a lot of energy. And that man, he, he wouldn't come. I guess he thought he didn't want to be involved or something, but he told me that his phone wasn't working. So he was, I was like right in front of his house. Um, and then a few minutes later, another guy had walked up to the car. Um, he had called the ambulance for me. He had wrapped his shirt or whatever around my neck, called the ambulance, explained to them what happened. Um, they started asking him a bunch of questions like, you know, my, my features, uh, you know, what happened. I guess they have to, I don't know why they was asking so many questions, but I just kept telling him to tell them that I'm dying, you know, hurry up. We don't, we don't have time for questions. Just tell them where I'm at. It's a hurry up. You know, then, the, you know, the police got there, um, ambulance got there. And mind you, this is a block from my sister's house. So at this point I hear like my nephews and my nieces, like screaming out, trying to get closer because they, they know my car. They they knew it was me, but the police not letting them, you know, get any closer. They don't know what's going on. Um, and then from there, I was uh, rushed to PG Hospital. And I guess that's where they stabilized me because, um, you know, just bleeding out and my, my lungs had collapsed as a result of it. Mm. So I had to get two chest tubes put in at PG Hospital, and then they medevac me to University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center. And from that point on, I was there for two weeks. Um, and they had to, you know, keep coming in, doing checks to see about my movement and things like that. And I just couldn't move. They told me it was a, a, a good possibility that I wouldn't be able to walk again, use my hands again, and things like that. So that's you know, I hadn't heard your story that in depth before. And just kind of, as you were talking about it, I'm like literally visualizing it as it's taking place. And that is an incredibly traumatic um, experience. And I mean, we've talked about it before, but I just really hate that you even had to go through something like that. And just the buildup to, how it began, how it started. People have to really take that seriously because we do, we do that. We, we dismiss behaviors. Oh, well, you know, or you start to sympathize with the person right. who, oh, he's just in a bad mood or he just had a bad day. Yeah, I, I, that is a remarkable story. And, and usually in terms of trauma, people don't feel comfortable sharing it. At what point were you comfortable sharing your story like you just shared now um i would say a few months after i stopped going through therapy um i had to do about four and a half months of inpatient therapy at national rehab hospital and then about a year of outpatient therapy and after that time i just i wanted people to hear my story i wasn't i i wouldn't even say I was ready to tell my story. I just, the urge for me to, to have my voice heard and my story heard and to start, you know, being proactive and trying to be active in my community in terms of educating people and letting people know that it can happen to anyone. So I think that kind of over, over, 
ruled my desire to, you know, well, I would say my, my fear of telling my story. Cause when I first would start to tell my story, I would, you know, cry a whole lot. Um, in the middle of me speaking, I've done various speaking engagements. Like I've received an award from the department of justice for like bravery and things like that. And I've spoke, uh, in resources and services administration, DC and then also to DC courts. Um, so it's, it's, it's always been rough and I've always cried, but it's, it's, the more that I tell my story, I think the more strength that I get from it, the, the easier it is for me to, to tell it because I never thought it would come a point where I could tell my story like now and then not cry after it. Um, yeah, that's part of the healing too. Sometimes we feel guilt when we experience traumatic experiences too. And um, it's like the more you tell the story, the more you release its grip and its hold on you. I think yeah, that- and that's exactly what's been happening. I, I have some things that came as a result of the trauma that I went through. So like PTSD, depression, anxiety. Um, I've come a long way in terms of healing because I also see a therapist, but even to this day, I still have, I get triggered by lots of things, whether it's like a certain song or it's still streets that I don't ride past, um, certain scents. And then also if it's something I see on the TV or hearing other people's stories. So it's a lot of things that still make me tear up or like it's a lot of repercussions and consequences that I still face mentally and physically as a, as a result of that. So I, I still cry a lot um, from that. Yeah, you know, that PTSD is yes. real. People don't really understand that one. I had experienced it. And, and when you have PTSD, you relive that situation over and over and over again in your mind where you play out and you, in right. your mind is, if I did this, could it have been differently? It's like you try to go back in your mind. You try to go back to that time to, see, to play out different, to play your role differently because in your mind, it's like you're trying to convince yourself I could have avoided this, and I, and and a, and a big part of that PTSD is just mm -hmm. forgiving yourself and knowing that it's nothing that I could have done, I, and I commend you for moving on and, and not looking at me differently. In my in my experience, I totally got to a point I, I wanted to hate all men, and that's very real when a woman has a, a, a issue with the who a perpetrator who perpetrated evil on them if it's a man that can make you have some feel, some type of feelings towards men how did you respond to that or did did you write those are feelings arise in you or how did you handle it uh i don't i isolated i think i isolated that situation and mm -hmm. that relationship because i've always felt and even after that felt like all men aren't the same right. all women aren't the same but I also had in the back of my head that anybody is capable of anything. So that's the thought that remained. Anybody is capable of anything, meaning no matter how much they say they love you or show that they love you or how much you love them. I always have in the back of my head something could tragically happen, um, even when things are going very well. Um, so I think I will, I will always feel that way, but I never hate, I, I don't hate men as a result of that. And I still feel like, you know, there are good men out there. There are good men out there. Just this one person don't dictate how everybody else would treat me. And I've, I've met some good men. If, 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 there were, if you were to describe your road to recovery, how would you describe that? 
I mean, you, you, you have, you've touched oh, on man. it, but if you were to describe it in a couple of words, how would you describe your road to recovery? What would that sound like? What would it look like? What would it smell like? I think this, this road to recovery is um, emotional. It's unstable. It's, it's a lot of different things. It takes you a lot of different places. And quickly for me, like I had a, a range of different emotions. Like I was excited to be able to be healing and learning how to walk again, but I was also depressed and feeling like I never should have had to go through that. But then I was also, you know, determined to, to get stronger and I was determined to uh, tell my story. So it was, it was so many different things that I was feeling. Even now, I think that therapy really, therapy really helped me a lot to be able to forgive myself because for a long time I was just, just depressed that it had happened and just felt like, why me? Why did that, why did it happen to me? What was the purpose? Why am I still here? Like I, uh, for a long time, I was very depressed and I had to take a lot of different medications to, as I had to take a medication for a mood stabilizer, medication to help me sleep, medications for my pain, muscle spasms, um, and stuff like that. So, but it's like through it all, I was able to see the, how this situation benefited me. So although I have gone through a lot physically and mentally, I've also grown so much spiritually and emotionally. Like I'm so much more aware now. I'm, I think I, I'm upgraded. I think that I have truly evolved in terms of my emotions and awareness and just knowing myself and just being better. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to if I hadn't gone through this. So I'm, I'm thankful in that regard. And I do feel like I, I will continue to heal. I don't feel like this road has ended yet. Uh, you know, it may not ever end, but I do see that I'm steadily getting better because I'm able to smile and just be thankful for life presently. And I'm able to cope much better with my emotions and my mental. I'm, I'm off of all my medications, which is a big step. I never thought I would be, you know, not taking anything. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful for it all. But it's, it's still rocky. It's like you have your ups, your downs, your straights, your, your wiggly lines. but I'm still progressing through it all. Are there any specific things that you did in terms of your spiritual growth? Like, like what are things that you did spiritually to help yourself? Okay. Um, well, again, I keep saying it started within therapy. My therapist gave me a lot of different tools. One being meditation. I never, I guess, really knew how to do it or I didn't think I was benefiting from it, so I didn't practice it. Um, I was just being more mindful of myself. I was actually setting intentions into the world. I would meditate, you know. For me, that would be being in nature. That's what I love, and just, uh, you know, just breathing in a lot of the good things and exhaling a lot of the bad things and just being gentle with myself. To me, I think uh, a lot of my spiritual growth has meant being gentle with myself and then also looking at the people around me and realizing that a lot of the things that they do aren't, I shouldn't take personal. Um, a lot of the things and emotions that people, you know, do or say to you is because of whatever they have going on inside. And I think that has made me grow a lot, um, you know, because you can really see things for what they are. We're all still growing. We all have hurt. And a lot of us have been through 
traumatic situation. So I think spiritual enlightenment is really, you know, seeing people, um, seeing people as, you know, beautiful specimens, seeing the, the good in them, um, seeing the good in myself, even though I've been, you know, hurt and flawed and some would say broken, you know, just being gentle with myself, still nurturing those parts of me that need to be nurtured, talking to those gentle parts of me, you know, um, just, I guess just thinking real intentional about the ways that I want to heal, speaking to my body, you know, massaging those parts of my body that, that hurt, being out in nature, meditating. Meditation has been a big part of it. Yes. That's, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's heavy. My, uh, my nephew asked me last night, he says, he says, T, I said, what? He said, do you believe in reincarnation? And I started laughing. I said, I said, yes and no. He's like, well, what do you mean? I said, I don't believe in a physical reincarnation, but I do believe in a spiritual one. I said, you can go through something that's so, that could be so detrimental to you that when you come out on the other side, you're like a whole new person. You become a stronger person. You become a more knowledgeable person. I said, so it's almost like reincarnation. You become someone totally different spiritually. So, and you said, based on, you said how you, how you healed and you talked about the upside of your healing and how you, you felt like you were upgraded or you went through an evolution. It was like a, a spiritual reincarnation that you, you overcame and you used divine power, feminine power to overcome that and to prove that you can't, that this is not the end, that, you can still grow from this. You can still be, come out on top, even after experiencing something like this. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all of that. I kind of compare myself or call myself the phoenix. Um, I feel like I, you know, <laughs> crashed and burned and everything turned to ashes. And now and I'm mm-hmm. flying with fire now. Like I, one of the biggest parts of, I think, healing for me has always been quiet. Um, and kind of, you know, soft spoken about the situation. And that's why it's also my tagline, speak on the unspoken, mm. um, speak on the unspoken, because for a long time I didn't. And I think that I have a, a fire in me now that I never would have had before. I have a voice now and I'm not afraid mm. to, to speak up for how I feel, regardless of how it may impact others, as long as it's in a respectful and a non-toxic way. I, I speak up for myself and I'm not afraid anymore and that's it's a, a lot of freedom in that so I feel like I'm you know I really do feel like I'm the, the phoenix that's that's fine <laughs> high now just trying to help others by sharing my story well I saw some of the videos I, I, I and I saw how the, the your impact of your story had on these individuals I saw a couple of videos that I'm sure you'll share with our listening audience at the end of the show but I was just like man her her experience just spiritually motivated and spiritually touched so many different people. I mean, that's power. I mean, yeah. you can touch someone's soul and you could change. You can influence it for the best. That's that's power. That's that's some divine feminine power. Yes, I'm I'm very thankful for that. Uh, each each time that I decided to share my story. And then even a lot of women have opened up to me, even though they haven't opened up before or shared their story before, just telling me about what they've been through and they never would have been able to speak on it, but that they can relate. So it's, it's a very humbling feeling. I'm just grateful to still be here, um, to still be an experience for people to learn from. Uh, you know, just 
I just really wanted to show people that you, you know, you can make it through. You can get better. Like, cause I was at a point where I felt like nothing would get better. Um, I was at my lowest and I'm just here to show people that it can get better. You know, it may not always be easier. It may not, it may not get easier, but you'll get stronger because of what you went through. You'll be stronger. You'll be stronger because of it. However, we sure would like for people not to have to go through stuff. <laughs> Do you know any resources that are available to people? I have a, a, a couple that I would mention, but you think if somebody feels like they're going through something, like what's the first step? The first step? Um, I feel like if you feel like you're going through something, the first step would be to tell somebody. Tell someone, someone that cares about you, someone that you know, has, is, would be able to go and get you help or would be able to come and get you if you needed it. So that's, that's always the first step to tell someone, to let somebody know what you're, you're going through. Cause even though, you know, a lot of situations, abusers even take the forms of communication uh, from these people. So, but as long as that person know you make sure they know where to find you. So if they haven't heard from you in a long time to check on you, you know, just let, you know, kind of have a, I guess, a safety plan, a safety plan in a way, um, for if things start to seem odd or just even certain words that you should use, like if you're on the phone with them, like certain safe words that, so if this person hear this word, okay, I know that this person is in trouble. Cause a lot of times you can't speak about what you're going through. It depends on your living situation. And, you know, just like now, a lot of people are in the house with them. You can't really get away. Some people can't leave the house at all. So just talking to somebody and developing some type of words for them to know, uh, you know, when to be alerted of when you're in danger. Yeah. Um, there is a national domestic violence hotline. Yeah. Um, and I know that number is 1-800-799-SAFE. And that would be 1-800-799-7233. So 1-800-799-SAFE or www.thehotline.org. But even other trauma-related things, because you got a lot of people that are, are still going through other issues, and, and that's still the information that they need. You still need to tell somebody, period. Whatever you're going through, you need to tell somebody. That brings us to our challenges. Um, I got, you know what, I usually come with some, and I have some, but... I, we're going to let our sister speak on this one because she has some wonderful challenges that she used to recover um, from her situation. And I, I think it was better than mine. So we're going to go on with that. Uh, Saharia mentioned meditation. So I challenge you, if you've been in any situation, if you've been in a traumatic situation or not, meditation is good for everybody. I challenge you to meditate because I remember hearing that, and I can't, I can't, I don't know what the source of it, where the source of it comes from, but uh, prayers for asking, meditation is for waiting for the answer. Oftentimes the answers to what we're going through or to help end what we're going through or help us through what we're going through, we find it through meditation. The next thing that Shaharia mentioned was, she, what she used was to set worldly intentions. I love that one, Shaharia, that you mentioned. Set your intentions of what you want to do. Even though you have experienced a situation uh, like a domestic violence or something similar, set your intentions. What do you want to do? Your goals don't stop because you went through something. Set those intentions on how you're going to make it through the situation and what you plan to do to make the world better once you get out of that situation. 
another thing, and I'm glad you mentioned this, Shaharia, was you use nature to heal. If that ain't the best, that ain't the best healer, I don't know what it is. Water, plants, um, crystals, all of that. Use it to heal. I'm a big crystal person. Um, but I'm really trying to get more into to water and to, to plants and to all those things. So nature is very important. That's a very, forget the medication as far as spiritual healing. We know that will help you. But if you truly want to spiritually heal, do not negate the power of nature. That has to be a part of your healing regimen along with any medication that you prescribed or uh, whatever help me that you are prescribed from a professional, you still got to throw in nature. One thing that Shaharia mentioned was nurturing the gentle parts of the self. And I thought that was so heavy. Our vulnerable parts about ourselves, we have to nurture. And how do you know about your uh, vulnerable parts or your gentle side of yourself if you don't meditate? So you meditate, you, you, that's uncovered. And then you're able to nurture those parts. You're able to nurture yourself. It's called self-healing. Uh, another another uh, challenge that, that was mentioned by our sister was how she massaged those parts of herself that was hurt. Man, if that, if that wasn't so powerful, I said, man, if that bring, you just took it to a whole nother level about self-healing, Sister Shahar, right. and I really appreciate you for that. And these are some things that I can take away, and I hope you as our listening audience can really take those challenges and apply them to yourselves to heal, because as Black people in America, we have all experienced trauma, but each, every one of us have a personal story of trauma that we can share to help one another spiritually grow. So those are our challenges. And now, Shaharia, this is where we're going to give you the floor, young sister. Go ahead and, and tell people about how they could find you and reach out to you and how they could just touch the hem of your garment, sister, because you're doing some powerful work. And I really would like the people to find out how they can get, to, get in touch with you. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, my name is Shaharia Johnson. I have a, a YouTube channel I posted, and I'm also a poet. I posted videos of me telling my story in a very poetic, creative storytelling type of way. Um, so you can just uh, find me on YouTube, look through my videos. Um, my, you spell my first name S H E H A R I A H, last name Johnson. And also on Facebook, I started a collective and group called Silence Kills, S-I-L-E-N-C-E, Kills. And it's just a group where I want to empower, support, and just, you know, just unite people who just want to see everybody heal and just be better. Um, um, it's a collective that I started for people to uh, use the arts, like writing, dancing, uh, poetry, modern, whatever you consider your art to be, to just be able to express the things that you went through, different ways to tell your story, because I know it's not always easy to just speak, uh, speak on it. So I just want to, I was just trying to promote people to use the arts to express them things that, that are hard to talk about. So again, on Facebook, Silent Skills, on YouTube, Shaharia Johnson. Um, this sister is, when I say quiet power, you know, sometimes people think power is you got to be all out there. You don't have to be. This sister is the epitome of power, divine power. So I, I challenge your listening audience to really look at it. So when you come back at our next uh, podcast, you should be healed so much more deeper because our sister has helped put you on the path of recovery. Thank you once again, Sister Shaharia. And uh, I wish you much success with 
the continued mission of educating people on domestic violence and on the, and the uh, also praying success for your organization because I know you're going to do great things. Our listeners, thank you. thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Conversations with the Royal Impress. Tune in next week for another enlightening conversation. For more information on the Royal Impress, please visit the website royalimpress.org. You can also follow the Royal Impress on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Conversations with the Royal Impress is a subsidiary of the Royal Impress organization. All rights reserved.